We're looking at Acts 17 and the Apostle Paul taking the gospel then into a holy pagan environment in Athens. And we're looking at verses 18 to 21 this morning. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So, uh, he's moved from the synagogue where he began his evangelism in Athens, uh, speaking to the uh, Jews on the Sabbath day. And then he went to the public square. I heard the news this morning, and uh, the, uh, the reporter telling of the economic plight of, of Greece was saying, I'm here on the public square of Athens. Oh, I'm speaking about the public square of Athens this morning. And he was telling us about the plot problems that they were having there. And so he was preaching there in the public square. And we've described that to you. And then one day, the big boys arrived. Uh, the Athenian intellectuals with their grand, elegant, incomprehensible abstractions about the human condition. Well, I had to study it at university in Cardiff. But uh, that, that's all. It's the only, the, the little philosophy departments. No one's reading Plato and Aristotle today except a few academics, but millions of people all over the world in every continent and country are reading Paul's letters and are reading about his exploits in the book of Acts. Well, these philosophers used to exist in Great Britain. When I was a boy, there was a program called Brains Trust. And there was generally a philosopher present there, <coughs> Burton Russell or um, Dr. Jode, or A.J. Eyre, and they answered questions then authoritatively because they were uh, academics and philosophers about morality and about the purpose of life and millions listened respectively to them. Where are philosophers today? The nearest, I suppose, are the French intellectuals, though they increasingly are a dying breed. Jean-Paul Sartre, was the flamboyant personification of that kind of man. When he died, in 1980, 50,000 men and women followed his coffin. He dominated the French intellectual scene by his writings, by his bohemian lifestyle, his sensuality, and by <clears throat> his opposition to Christian morality. Well, we don't have such a tradition in Wales. We've never had the status of the philosopher. Uh, we've had the gospel, haven't we? And we've had preachers and we've had Christian teachers and so on. So Paul was standing in the marketplace day by day. He was serious, he was eloquent, he had a new message to bring to the people. And so he stirred interest and some people were impressed 
by what he said and what he told them about Jesus and the resurrection. And people were talking about him and some were obviously very drawn, quite persuaded by what he had to say. And some of this interest was created simply because he was the new kid on the block. Amongst the other teachers, the wandering uh, philosophers that would come and speak there, uh, there was Paul. And in Athens, it wasn't so much the latest fashion in clothing or in music or entertainments or such trends as those that got people excited, but... uh, Recent ideas. And so you see the parenthesis, the brackets that Luke uh, uses in verse 20 when, when he makes a comment on Athens and he says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So there was this obsession with what's new. And people who moved in, traders and Uh, political delegates who moved in and lived in Athens, uh, they were soon captured by that spirit, and they they wanted to talk about what everyone talked about and listen to what everyone listened to and debated what everyone debated over their uh, meals together. Well, we've had a fascination like that in Wales. Um, The new ideas of what Christianity is all about that started in Germany in the um, beginning, middle of the uh, 19th century. And then it came. It came to uh, England and Wales. And Spurgeon had to deal with it, didn't it? And then in the early 20th century, it crossed the Atlantic and uh, it got to America. And Machen had to deal with it on behalf of the Presbyterians and... Uh, Walter had to deal with it on behalf of the Lutherans. It was contemporary. It was attractive in its newness. It was exciting. It challenged the old ways. And its advocates preached very challenging sermons. Shall the fundamentalists win? They preached sermons like that. They promoted it. And it certainly was promoted in Wales. Every theological college from the north to the south of every denomination, to preach the, the new theology and patronize the old ways then. Uh, there was a famous painting called Salem of an old lady in a Welsh costume sitting in a pew with a few other people in an old Welsh country chapel not far from Harlech. And people said, ah, yes, those were the days, weren't they, when people had uh, just simple faith and... Uh, Oh, they trusted in God and they worshipped in the old ways and not possible any longer, of course. The new ideas have come, a new message for a new age. The 20th century was on and the theological colleges were disseminating that and my uncles were all influenced by it. That man was capable of devising new answers to the old problems, that there was a sufficiency in man to come to these things. And those who opposed it and were trembling at the consequences for the churches of this were dismissed out of hand. They hadn't studied. They weren't educated. They were looking backwards. They were looking back to the age of the dinosaurs. They were Jurassic Park Church. That's where they were members of. Uh, How hard to resist 
powerful trends. How hard to take a stand on confessional teaching for grounding the faith of a congregation in the Bible. Oh, I felt it. Oh, I've had a buzz of excitement when people said, have you thought of it like this? There's that. New ideas. Our only question as Christians is to ask, what has God said? Our only proof is God's word. And we are never to reach the point when we think that we know more than the Bible. There are only two questions to be considered. One, is this the word of God? And two, what does it mean? When you ascertain that, there's nothing left but to believe and adore Paul asked um, another prominent uh, city, in, in a prominent city, he asked the people there, in another prominent Greek city, he said, where is the wise? Where is the disputer of this world? Where are they? Well, where are they today? We look around. I talked about the great uh, philosophical names when I was a boy. Who would you quote today as the arbiters of What is right and wrong? They disappear, don't they? New trends, new personalities will will come along. In 2012, the French magazine, Magazine Littéraire, contained an article with the title, Does France Still Think? Where's the thinker? Does Wales still think? Where is the thinker? Well, in Act 17, we have the answer. Uh, Whenever their power, whenever their monopoly of teaching is challenged by gifted preachers of Jesus Christ, by gifted advocates, Christian professors at the university, Christian spokesmen who will take on uh, the atheists and so on, then, of course, the wise men rise up and they come to the scene. They stand up and they speak up to silence and discredit the fundamentalists. Uh, We have the latest scientific ideas, they say, uh, and they want to be considered the experts with their elegant and sophisticated abstractions about the human condition. So Luke tells us then, there was a day when uh, when Paul went and got to his pitch and there were people waiting for him And he got into a routine, as routines are so important, and he began to preach to the people. And then a little delegation came from the two leading schools of philosophy of Athens, the Stoics and the other other party there. Now then... um, Paul didn't send for them. He was simply preaching the good news. But uh, they came to diss him. And that happens. Um, How did Paul respond? Uh, And Peter tells us, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in you to anyone who asks you. And that you are to do it then with, uh, with respect. 
And people are going to come to you and they're going to say to you, uh, why aren't you in despair? Why don't you, when you hear the terrible news of murders and uh, the work of ISIS and the threat that it is to the country, and you think, oh dear, what hope is there for us? And you are a man of hope. You're, you've buried your, your husband, your wife. You're, you've got children that are seriously ill, and yet you're not uh, cringing in despair. You're, you're a person of, of trust and hope. Why are you a person of hope? Your neighbor says, you sit on the bus and you come in from the villages outside into town and a lady talks to you and, and you can say, well, I went through that experience. But um, I found God to be so real and helpful to me at this time. We are people of faith and hope and love. And uh, our chief duty, our prime duty is to stir up these graces to be more filled with love and to be stronger in trusting God and for our hope to expand and abound and that's the beginning of our testimony where we work and in our families if we're the only Christian, if the only boy or girl in our class in school who's a Christian and you say Lord Help my faith and my love and my hope to get more and more strong. And people will be drawn to us and will ask us shyly questions. You go to church then. And they'll be willing to come with us. And so Paul met these uh, Stoics and these Epicurean philosophers. He's wonderful, isn't he? The way he can talk to people. He's in the marketplace and there are teenagers and there are little boys and they want to listen to this man. They've never heard anyone speaking like this. And uh, there are slaves there. There are housewives doing their shopping. And they're all taken up. And he can speak to them animatedly and livingly. And then uh, the most uh, professional and, uh, and academic teachers from the Epicureans and the Stoics that they turned up. famous rivals always arguing with one another but now joined together to oppose then what they see as a common new enemy uh, the Lord Jesus and his servants now here are these two groups then Stoics and Epicureans and they're strange names but they're biblical names aren't they they're not my names they're here in, in scripture in front of you and Luke wants us to know who the opposition was, and he gives their names here. And uh, what they believed is very common. It's all around us. It's the air we breathe. In school, in work, on TV, in the newspapers, it's full of Epicurean and Stoic philosophy. I was reading The Spectator, not this week, but ten days ago, in a column written by a man called Bruce Anderson, and this was his opening sentence. I cannot remember a jollier lunch. There are two brothers, Sebastian and Nicholas Payne, both practical Epicureans. There it is. That was the word. I was preparing this sermon, and I found in a weekly magazine, the Epicureans, or the philosophers of the garden. They were founded by a man called Epicurus, who had died 300 years before Paul. And his followers believed that the gods were remote, and they took no interest and no influence in human affairs. 
And that the world came about by chance. The cosmos was a random concourse of atoms. There was no afterlife. There was no judgment. And so human beings should focus on finding pleasure in this world. To live a life of detachment from its sorrows and passions and fears. It's the supreme philosophy in Wales today. We live in an Epicurean culture. People feel they are free to do what they like as long as it doesn't interfere with the happiness of anyone else. That's Epicureanism. And then there were the Stoics, the philosophers of the porch. The Stoa were the painted columns uh, just next to the Agora where the BBC man was standing this morning sending a report back. The Agora, the marketplace. And the Stoics had their, uh, their school of Stoicism there too. It was founded by a man called Zeno. And he also lived about 300 years before um, the Apostle. And they were pantheists, that is, God was what you saw around you. Um, what they called the world soul, what we called nature. That's what they worshipped. They worshipped nature. Um, all of God is found in nature. It's, there's nothing of God outside what you see all around you. And the world is determined by fate. And human beings just have to carry on with life. And don't struggle against circumstances and accept things as they are. And resign to live in harmony with whatever happens to you. That was what Stoicism taught. It's, you know, Kesara Sara. Whatever will be, will be. That's what it is. It's fatalism. It's karma. Stoicism says, don't let your emotions determine how you are going to live. Search for the hero inside yourself. Uh, uh, in the film City Slickers, um, there there are, it's the story of some businessmen in New York who go off cattle branching um, for a, a few weeks holiday out west. And they ride as cowboys all day and they meet the chief ranch hand who leads them and his name is Curly and he's played by that awesome looking hatchet faced uh, Jack Palance and uh, they're sitting around the fire they've got to know one another now after a few days and so they say to him what is life all about Curly and Curly says just one thing that's all he says. Those three monosyllables. In other words, you, you choose. You choose something in life. You have to make up your own choice yourself. And that's the one thing. And then you live for that. You go for it. You spend your life in going for that one thing. You focus on it. And you develop self-sufficiency in doing that. That's stoicism. In wartime, you know, you met it. If your name is on the bullet... Well, there we are. You're gone. If your name is on the bomb, the name of your house, if the manse is written on it, then the bomb is going to hit your house. There's nothing you can do. Stoicism. People see all the warnings about smoking cigarettes and the horrible pictures of the lung cancer and so on. 
you'll die more painfully. You'll die more slowly if you do this. The, the lurid warnings there are. But people say, well, we're going to die anyway. We can be knocked down by a bus. And so they keep smoking. Stoicism. So Epicureans then, they emphasize chance and devotion to pleasure. And Stoics emphasize fatalism and submission and the brave endurance of pain. And so in this sermon, that starts at verse 24 and goes on to 31, just seven or eight verses, that's all it is, Paul answers uh, some of these Contemporary philosophical ideas. Contemporary then and contemporary today. So what we have in this chapter is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ confronting Greek philosophy and contemporary Welsh idealism. And Paul is going to tell them of the living God who is not a part of creation but we, we say ontologically, that's the buzzword, that in his being, he's different from the clouds and the sky and the earth and the trees around us. And he's good and he's caring and he keeps us and sustains us all and we are his offspring. And he's going to call us to judgment for how we've lived our lives. And he's going to ask them to change and give up their ideas and... Uh, know this personal, omnipotent God for themselves. So, here are two alternative expressions of paganism. And it's, it's revived, isn't it? One of our friends was down uh, a week ago today, um, driving to church, and he was going past Stonehenge, and the crowds of people that were there, the, the new paganism that's there to see the sun, shining through the stones on Stonehenge. Nothing's been invented in the last hundred years that can give any better answers to the human condition, the uncertainty of our lives, the the brevity of them, the, the pain that we meet, the purpose of life. Nothing from the time of these Greek philosophers can offer anything more to men and women. And then we've, we've got this gospel of the Lord Jesus, his teaching, his perfect life, his wonderful signs, his atoning death and his resurrection on the third day. And that's where Paul went into Greece to speak about Well, now, if you reject my Savior, what have you got? What do you turn to? You're either a a creature of a frivolous thing called chance. Everything that happens to you is just a matter of luck, bad luck, that's all. Or you are in the pitiless grip of cold, indeterminate fate. I told you how um, John Lennon was spoken to by a friend of mine called David Patterson in Fort William in the hospital there. Uh, John Lennon uh, and Yoko and I think it was her child, 
rather than his child. Uh, Cynthia was the mother of one of them, wasn't she? And uh, they were uh, going on. He went off the road and he totaled the roads and uh, he was taken to Fort William Hospital. And the matron was, uh, she was a wee free and she called David and said, we've got John Lennon in, can you come and have a chat with him? So he came and talked to John Lennon. They had the two of them together. And uh, he said, he said to, to David, John Lennon said, it's because of my karma. That's why it's happened. I'm being punished for what I did, or what I did in a pre-incarnate life. What I was before I was reincarnated, I did something bad and I'm being judged now by destroying my roles and getting here in hospital. And David spoke to him about the Lord Jesus. How the Lord Jesus took our karma. He took our judgment. He bore it in his own body. That we might be relieved of the burden of all that we had done in our lives. All the guilt and the shame of it. And he's dealt with it and forgiven us freely. That's the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wee frees were meeting the Epicurean Stoic, John Lennon, poor John Lennon. All right, uh, the next thing that we see here is that uh, Paul was scorned by them. They, they listened for a while and then, you know, voices came from the back of the crowds, shouts out, interruptions came. What is this babbler trying to say? Verse 18. And they dismissed him. That's the first thing. Like they attacked Christ. He's a wine bigger. He's a friend of the wrong sort of people. He's a drunkard. He mixes with the wrong crowd. He's born in the wrong family. His father was a carpenter. He comes from the wrong place. He comes from Nazareth. What good thing has come out of Nazareth? That he does things by the power of Beelzebub. That's the explanation for the miracles he does. And they accused him of blasphemy. And Jesus says, you're going to be dealt with in exactly the same way that I have been dealt with. And so they called him a babbler. What is this babbler? And that is a piece of characteristic Athenian slang. It means literally a seed picker. It's used of uh, various scavenging birds, the seagulls that dive on the rubbish dumps then, or that follow the tractor and pick out the the worms that are there. In the comedy of uh, Aristophanes called The Birds, a famous uh, Greek uh, comedy then, um, it's used of rooks, carrion birds. And then it moved on and it described the beggars then who uh, went outside your house uh, when you put out the rubbish to see what they could pick up. Uh, who went to the dumps and fly tips. Gutter snipes, you know, the bird, the snipe is used and then it's attached to searching in the gutters for food. It was used then of teachers who had no original ideas themselves and they just picked up ideas from other people. Second-rate men with second-rate ideas. So that was the first response 
that they gave to Paul, that he had a ragbag of sayings and uh, ideas he wasn't worth bothering with. He was a plagiarist, he was a parrot, he was an intellectual magpie. And they rubbished him as a charlatan, they mocked him, so that he had to deal then with uh, these interrupters. An ignorant man, not a serious thinker, they were serious thinkers. And then there was another response, then others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And those were highly charged words, because that was the charge that had been brought 300 years earlier against Socrates. Um, On that spot, 400 years earlier, Socrates went against the established view that there were many gods. Socrates didn't believe that. Socrates believed that there was just one, one great god. And because he believed that, he was accused of atheism and um, he was accused of leading the youth of Greece astray and found guilty and he drank the hemlock you know, in the famous scene that uh, he's surrounded by his friends and he dies there. It's movingly written. Plato writes about it. And oh, that's, you know, that's a, a huge story. That's like Magna Carta. That's like the defeat of the Spanish Armada. That's like... Uh, World War One and Two, huge episodes in the past that live on and uh, are talked about even today. And so perhaps Luke is setting up Paul as, as a Socrates type of figure, as a man who teaches and is prepared to suffer for what he has to say, a man who faces death for what he has to say. And then lastly, we are told that he was taken to a meeting of the Areopagus. So he was first a sightseer. And then he was a teacher in the synagogue. Then he was an evangelist in the marketplace, in the Agora. And then lastly, he is an advocate of his saviour in in a meeting of the Areopagus. Okay, this word, Areopagus, it means the hill. Pegos is hill in Greek. The hill of Ares. And Ares is the Greek equivalent of Mars. And so, Paul was on Mars Hill. There's a famous evangelical church in the USA, in... uh, Washington State, and uh, its title is Mars Hill, and uh, Mars Hill is near the Acropolis, the famous center then for what tourists go to in Athens, and it was where the Supreme Court in Greece met. Let's ask a few questions about it. Uh, What was this Areopagus? Well, it was no longer a court, but it was still important a sort of senate, a city council, people who met and legislated on religion and morals and education. Uh, they were considered the guardians of, of culture and, and the, the Greek tradition. We have them today, don't we? We have magistrates. And uh, the, there are open-air preachers, and, and, and people will want to abuse them and say, oh, they were rubbishing homosexuality. And then they send for the police and the police arrest them. And 
Many open-air preachers now have a little dictaphone in their pocket so they can say, well, listen, this is what I said. I never mentioned this at all. Magistrates have to decide. And again and again, preachers have been freed and allowed to continue to preach as, as they should. So they were like that. So then the question is, uh, was he brought there to, ha- to Mars Hill, to the general area, or was he brought to an actual official council meeting of the Areopagus? And I think it was pretty obvious that he comes to an official meeting. And that's why it's given this place in the book of Acts. We're told that he was in their midst in verse 22 and in verse 33, that he left them. He went out from their midst. So he was escorted from the marketplace where he'd been preaching in the open air and he was taken now to the official meeting, to the the Senate. Was he forced to go there? That's another question. Was he being arrested? Was he being accused by some of the philosophers of introducing new gods? to Athens, foreign gods, gods of their great enemies, I said to you, um, their great enemies were the Persians. Was this an infiltration then? A fifth column that was teaching new gods there. Was he a Trojan horse? And so the Senate had to decide whether he could be allowed to go on teaching. Could he gather a group of Christians around him? Could he set up a structure with elders and worship services and meeting on the Lord's Day? Could he do that? Could they evangelize? You see, it was a big day for Greece. Just as Paul then appeals to Nero, to Caesar, that he can go to the heart of the Roman Empire and he can get permission for Christians to gather and evangelize and teach and hold their meetings, and send out evangelists and missionaries everywhere. That's why uh, the climax of uh, the Acts of the Apostles is Acts 28. He's in Rome, and he's there waiting to speak up on behalf of Christians, and he won't, uh, he won't try to be freed from the chains that keep him there. But I don't think Paul was arrested here. There's no hint of a judicial process, no formal interrogation, no verdict, uh, no sentence. They're simply interrogating him. Give us an account of your preaching. That's what they say. They're interrogating him about that. And so he's here, facing this group of distinguished men, maybe 24 of them, serious-faced, in their togas, And they are going to consider and they're going to pass the judgment on to the political powers. And so it's so important. Will they allow Paul to continue to preach in Athens or not? May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. Verses 19 and 20. Well, let me close by saying Paul was well-equipped. You know, he was. And you're well-equipped. And I'm well-equipped. We can't say. Well, we don't have the resources to be Christians in Aberystwyth in the 21st century. God hasn't supplied us 
with the resources to stand and argue and meet people. We can't say that. The Lord Jesus had taught Paul something. When you were brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you'll say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say, Luke 12, 12. So that day when Paul was very alone, only he allowed in, and these men around him, God saw him there. God didn't say, um, one of you angels, would you like to go and help Paul at this time? God sent one who was equal to him in power and glory. He sent God the Holy Spirit. He was there with Paul to speak to these people. And the Holy Spirit loved Paul. Loved him with a measureless, infinite love. As soon as the blood of Christ began to flow on Golgotha, the Holy Spirit began to come. And to keep the the fearful women and the the men there. And to, to keep them. And then to come upon them. And then to come upon the church from that time on and apply to them the merit and power of the blood of Christ. He was there to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will always be with us. What is going to relieve us from the tedium of eternity? Well, the measureless Holy Spirit, full of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and meekness and self-control. There'll be no tedium when you are a hundred percent filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And he came, and he came to Paul, and he touched his lips, and clarified his thinking, and he stopped his knees knocking, and he took away his weakness, and he opened his mouth. And he experienced on the Areopagus what he had experienced everywhere he had gone in the name of the Lord. He looked to the Lord for help and strength the holiest and most powerful and loving being that there ever has been or ever will be, was there with Paul. Not visible to the eyes of faith, but known by him, speaking through him. That was his courage, that was strength, that was his all-sufficiency. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's how it is. That's how it will be for you. You children on the bus, you children in your class, you students in your tutorials. The Holy Spirit with you, helping you to speak. Suddenly you are put on the spot and you cry and you, you give a word. You speak a word, don't you? You can say, ah, this means. And then you can say a word for your Savior. You read the book of Acts and that's what you see. So what did Paul have and what do we have? He had three things. Firstly, he had the power of the word. That's what he had, the power of the word. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's what he had there. They'd never heard anything like it when he s- stood before them and he began to speak to them. He knocked their socks off as he spoke to them. And you see the result of this sermon? 
You see it in verse 34. A few men became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Wouldn't we be glad one Sunday morning if there was a prominent woman and a leading professor and a number of other men and women were converted? Wouldn't we say, what a wonderful Sunday we've had? We'll never forget that Sunday. And that's what happened when Paul went to the Areopagus. He did no miracles, but he wielded the sword of the Spirit, and, well, he told them God has sent a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So God didn't let his syllables fall to the ground. So he had the power of the word. Secondly, he had the power of faith. He trusted God. He didn't go forth alone. We do not go alone against the foe, strong in thy strength and safe in thy keeping, tender. We rest on thee and in thy name we go. That's the expression of trust. That was Elizabeth Elliot and the other wives singing that song as their five husbands went off to preach the gospel to the Alka Indians. It's Hebrews 11. Through faith they subdued kingdoms. Through faith they obtained promises. Through faith they obtained righteousness, did they not? Those who were weak became strong and were powerful. Faith is an appropriating grace. Faith sees God, the invisible one, and takes him, holds his hand and knows his power. He didn't see togas and disapproving faces and hear the tut-tuts and all the attempts to put him off. He saw God. He set God at his right hand. And by the power of faith in God, he got what God wanted him to have. So here was an impossible situation. He was a foreigner, he was a Jew, and they were Greeks. He was a long way from home. He was an alien environment. And he was outnumbered, 24 to 1. But he had God, and so he was in the majority. And he could take God. The flame of a match is as real a flame as the flames of a forest fire. He was a burning and a shining light because he trusted in God. And then lastly, he had the power of prayer, didn't he? You know, the wonderful authorized version translation of that verse towards the end of the letter of James, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much And so Paul asked people to pray for him five times. Um, And he tells them, a great and effectual door has been opened to me. The door with Areopagus is there and it's opened and I've gone through it and I'm meeting them and there are many adversaries. So pray for me, he says. And Christians all over the ancient world, in the Mediterranean basin, they were praying for Paul. And Paul was praying for himself. John Newton says, beyond our utmost wants, his love and power can bless. To praying souls, he always grants more than they can express. And so he went prayerfully dependent on the Lord who was in charge. What courage, what peace it gave to him. What anticipation. What is God going to do here now? How will God help me now? 
What wisdom will God give me? Am I saying these things? How extraordinary it is. And so he looked on the tiers and ranks of those men and he spoke to them as he should speak with the power of the word and the power of his trust in God and the power of prayer. We have it. We have those three graces still today. We don't go alone into this coming week. But we go equipped like this by God, that he garrisons our heart by his word, that he deepens our trust in him, and he summons us to cry to him. Let fancies fly away. We fear not what men say. We labor night and day to be a pilgrim. Amen. Lord, bless your word to us now, we pray, and give us courage when we feel we're very alone and uh, we've let you down in the past and uh, we're afraid that we haven't got the academic skill or the eloquence to speak for you as we should. Bless stammering tongues, we pray. Bless lisping words. Help us from our hearts to speak with the enabling that the Spirit gives to us. Bless us to know more of the Word and know more about prayer and to trust Thee more deeply than we have so far. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.